group of guys praying at O Dark 30 this morning. And I look up on the wall and I see two buck mounts. I don't think I've been in the lodge before. And I snapped a picture and I want you to see them. And in fact, I want to leave the bucks there if we can through the whole time this morning. And here's why. That's it. Yep, yep. Pre- <laughs> just pretend you're up in a tree mount someplace. And this picture came to remember told I told you yesterday I've got a, a mind that kind of imagines. So this picture came to me. It's a book in the Bible you probably never read. Job chapter 1. Listen. One day the angels came and presented themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them. And the Lord said to Satan, "Where have you come from?" And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? (laughs) So I'm looking at those two mounts and I'm imagining Satan and Jesus talking to each other as they're looking at us. And Satan is saying to Jesus, you know, Bill, he's one of my trophies. Jesus says, yeah, I just have to tempt him a little bit and he'll dump right over. Lust, anger, deceit, (laughs) he's easy prey. Jesus says, not so fast. You ever watch college game day? Not so fast. He's one of mine. He's a trophy of my grace. Trophy? I purchased him by my blood. I agree, sometimes he stumbles, but he's a trophy of my grace. Nah, he's a trophy of my temptation. Yeah, I remember the day that he trusted you to be his savior, but that's kind of faded away in his memory. He's really one of mine, back and forth. Which do you see yourself as? A trophy of Satan? that he takes pride, that he just has to tempt you a little bit and it doesn't take much and you veer off course. Or a trophy of God's grace and he keeps strengthening you and you've developed the ability to say no when the temptation comes. This morning we're gonna look at three men, three words, three stories. First, I want to read to you the little paragraph that I wrote for you. Has our society ever been in a season of greater moral confusion? Gender identity, marriage and family redefinition, pornography permeated media, the Me Too movement, sex trafficking here in North America. So what type of man is needed now in in this time to protect our families? to bring clarity in the confusion, to counter the moral implosion, to help give the next generations a chance of survival. You ever read this little book, The Barbarian Way? (laughs) Erwin Raphael McManus. The barbarian can be found only by listening to the voice of the Spirit of God. The barbarian way can be known only by those who have the heart of God. 
The steps of the barbarian are guided by the footprints of Jesus. Barbarians see the invisible and hear the inaudible because their souls are alive to God. If I know nothing else about you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I know this without question. There is deep within you a raw and untamed faith waiting to be unleashed. When we come to the living almighty God, he consumes who we are and gives us life that is fueled by his presence and his power. You and I have been recreated by God to live in a raw and primal spirituality. Jesus came to ignite a fire within you that would consume you and ignite you. Jesus, the king, came to fight for your heart. If he has won your heart, then to follow your heart will always lead you to follow the heart of God. He will always lead you to advance forward behind the enemy lines to win the hearts of those who do not yet know him or have not yet been rescued by him. A barbarian invasion is taking place right now all around the world. Barbarians are not welcomed among the civilized <laughs> and are feared among the domesticated. The way of Jesus is far too savage for the sensibilities. The sacrifice of God's son, the way of the cross, the call to die to ourselves, all lack the dignity of a refined, comfortable faith. Why insist on such a barbaric way? Why a reckless call to awaken barbarian faith within us at the risk of endangering this great civilization we have come to know as passive Christianity? Because Jesus did not suffer and die so that you and I could build for ourselves safe havens, but so that we might expand the kingdom of his rescue because invisible kingdoms are at war for the hearts and the lives of every human being who walks on the face of this earth, including our families. And times of war require barbarians who are willing to risk their lives for the freedoms of others. The irony, of course, is that barbarians are driven away in times of peace they only disrupt our communities, our traditions, our sensibilities. It's only in the desperate times, times of war or conflict, that these outcast barbarians are welcomed or invited to lead. Barbarians can be counted as worthless when all is safe and secure, but dangerous times suddenly make them very valuable. We live now in such times. And we are not ready for the great challenges that are coming before us. We have not been prepared to take on any great quest to battle a great enemy or even pursue the great dream for which God created us. Jesus is being lost in a passive religion that bears his name. People are being lost because they cannot reconcile Jesus' association with Christianity. Christianity has become docile 
domesticated, civilized. We forget that there is a kingdom of darkness that is stealing the hopes and the dreams and the souls of humanity without God. It's time to hear the barbarian call, to form a barbarian tribe, to unleash the barbarian revolt. <laughs> That's why it's dog-eared. I don't go far without that. Three men, three words, three stories, and a song. So listen to the song, and then we'll get into it. Change my heart. That's what we're asking God to do this morning. Could I ask you to take your booklet and open it right to the middle, and there should be two blank pages there, and grab your pencil and write down this name, Daniel. And this word, resolve. And then equals a plan. Daniel, resolve, equals a plan. I guess it's been about eight or nine years ago, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and there's those lights, and I got angry at myself, and he got me. And I resolved that day, I will never again see lights in my back rearview mirror, and never again get a speeding ticket. I resolve. How are you gonna do that, Doug? Well, it's really not all that difficult. There's a speed limit sign on the side of the road. Pay attention. There's double yellow lines in the middle of the road. Pay attention. That funny looking sign, red, stop, pay attention. In other words, resolve to live by the traffic laws. And you will never again see lights in your rearview mirror. All right. <laughs> and so far, we're 10 years into that and doing pretty well. Now, there's a lot of cars going flying by me when I'm on the road, and sometimes, I admit it, they're on the side of the road a couple miles later with the lights flashing behind them. You got yours, buddy. Resolve. The year is about 609 BC or so, and the most powerful kingdom on the planet is modern-day Iraq, Babylon. And the most powerful man on the planet is King Nebuchadnezzar. And the most powerful army on the planet is his army, and they are ruthless, ruthless. And they're gobbling up little kingdoms all around them, and here they come against Israel. And instead of just destroying it, he's very strategic. He takes the king, by the way, plucks out his eyes, and then he takes the sons of the king, princes, the royal family, and then he takes what is called some of the nobility, the sons of the wise, the wealthy, the influential, and he takes them back to Babylon, and he puts them in a, many of them in a three-year educational crash course. He's going to teach them the history of the nation of Babylon, the language of the Babylonians, the culture of Babylon... Why? So that they can become his trusted leaders of his captive nations. In this case, young Daniel, maybe age 14 or 15, is taken as a captive 
and put into this three-year intensive training program. But that's not all. In addition, the king changes his name from Daniel, one whom God favors, to Belteshazzar, one who serves Baal. And if that wasn't enough, we're all men in the room, right? He's castrated. He's a eunuch. So that just in case he's ever alone with one of the princesses, there's no chance he's going to defile the royal line. Now put yourself in that situation and imagine how you feel. We don't know much about Daniel's family. We don't know his parents' name or anything, but we presume that he grew up there in Jerusalem and probably had some rabbinical teaching not far from the temple where he probably went off, and so we assume he has a reverent understanding of God. But when this is happening, am I permitted to stand on this, whoever put this here? Thank you. When this is happening, you can imagine that inside of him is welling up some feelings like, God, this isn't fair or right. I've tried to be a good teenager. I've tried to be honoring to you. And here I am now, 800 miles from my home. My family thinks I'm dead. I'm castrated. And I'm given a different name. And I'm forced to learn a new language. It's just not right. The Bible doesn't tell us that he had that attitude at all. I'm saying it would be understandable. Would you agree? I could see myself feeling that. But now in comes the chief of all of these prisoner nobility young men who's responsible for their training. And uh, it says here in Daniel chapter 1, these were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, qualified to serve in the king's palace. Uh, this Ashpenaz guy was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for th three years and after that they were to enter the king's service and among them was Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel, here's the word, resolved not to defile himself. May I suggest to you, my brothers, one of the keys to the future of your legacy and mine is that word. Are you willing to develop for yourself a game plan, a life plan that takes into consideration your vulnerabilities as you know them and build guardrails to protect you in times of stress, temptation, injustice Daniel resolved not to defile himself but it would have been so easy for Daniel to say nobody knows me here all of this that's happening to me is not my choice it's being forced upon me God surely you understand and God since it's just absolutely unjust what's happening to me I think you need to cut me some slack Daniel resolved not to defile himself. There's some really big lessons coming out of Washington the last couple of weeks. Would you agree? One of the big lessons is when you're in high school and college, years from now, the stupid things you do or the things that people accuse you of having done, even if you didn't do them, can potentially ruin your life many years later. Would you agree with that? 
So if you're among us and you're in high school, middle school, college, oh my, be careful. Because whatever is going on in your world, whatever choices you make, other people who are a part of that, who you think are your buds right now, may someday turn tail on you. And it may come back to haunt you and ruin your life years from now, even if you're one of those people who's at the top of your game, respected by everybody. And we've been watching it happen, haven't we, over the last couple of years, to all kinds of highly influential people. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Okay, now let's talk for a minute together. It's time for you to talk to me. What does that mean, Daniel resolved not to defile himself, and how did he do it? What do you suppose that he did to not defile himself, and where did that come from, that courage to say, no, tell me what you think. He made a Speak it up again, please. He made, a choice. he made a choice. That's right. That's almost what the Gators are doing today. He made a choice. What else? He would not worship Baal. He would not eat the food that defiled him. He made a choice. He presented a, he presented a possibility to alleviate the Well done, my brother. Well done. Not only did he resolve not to defile himself and make a choice not to do what was wrong, he presented an option of what he could do that would be right. Give us a test, you remember? Let us eat just vegetables and water for 10 days while these other guys in the school eat from the king's table and then you evaluate. Of course, Ashpenaz said, that could mean my head. Yeah, but take a chance. And 10 days later, what was the answer? They were found to be much better than the other guys and the king elevated them to a position of influence, which he held, by the way, for more than 60 years, advisor to four different emperors as the empires changed. It started with a choice. A resolve to not defile himself, not to undo his reputation, even though his name had been forcibly changed, he still, still saw himself as one whom God favors. Not to defile his God, not to defile his legacy. Even when nobody else around him was standing, he was going to stand for what was right, even at the risk of his own life resolved not to defile himself. Now, let's think about that a minute, fellas. You got a lot of room to write there on those two pages. What would be your top three greatest vulnerabilities? We understand what vulnerable means. When, in what circumstances, are you most vulnerable to do the things that if found out, you would be ashamed of? Is it when you're feeling tremendous stress, job pressure, etc.? Is it when you're all alone and it's the middle of the night and nobody else is around and you can surf anywhere on the internet you want to surf? Is it when you just finished watching an R-rated movie and now you'd like to go a little bit deeper? Is it when your wife has said for the third time, I really have a headache, not tonight? When are you most vulnerable? Vulnerable to sexual temptation, vulnerable to deceit, vulnerable to anger, vulnerable to anything, my friends. 
that could ruin your reputation if found out. You see, resolve means I know myself well enough that I build my own defense plan that will define what I do when I'm in a vulnerable place, especially if I don't have much time to think about it. Resolve. How's your resolve? Much more important than I never want to see the police lights in my rearview mirror. The resolve that will protect your reputation, your legacy. Would you agree with that? So if you've never thought that through, I want to invite you, even today, to start thinking about developing your own resolve defense plan. What are the things I need to do to protect me from what I know to be my own vulnerabilities? Okay? Second person, second word. I'll tell you a little bit of the story. You tell me who I'm talking about. So this guy had a whole bunch of brothers and one sister. Four different women married to one guy. How he kept his sanity, nobody knows. The one guy is Jacob, the four wives, you remember. And the son I'm talking about is Joseph, the favorite of daddy. And the stepbrothers didn't like it at all. And one day, you'll remember young Joseph teenager coming out to see how the brothers are doing to bring a report back to dad and they rip off that beautiful coat and they throw him in a pit and here comes some Midianites and they sell him as a slave remember taken down to Egypt sold to a man by the name of Mr. Potiphar captain of the guard but the Bible tells us that the Lord was with him there three times it says that in Genesis 37 God was with him. Now, again, similar to Daniel, he's hundreds of miles. This time it's Egypt, not Babylon. Hundreds of miles from home. He's been rejected and abandoned by his own family. So again, I see that he has every right to say, God, if you're there, obviously you're either angry with me or you've abandoned me or you've turned your back on me or you don't care. But clearly, clearly I'm in a world of hurt without you. He could conclude that, couldn't he? But for Joseph, it's not the word resolve. It's the word refuse. Do you remember what happened? It tells us in Genesis 39 that he was handsome and well-built. And he did his work without error. He was elevated to the chief of all of the slaves that worked in Mr. Potiphar, Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar's house he became the, the house manager of everybody there. He actually lived in a, in a place in their house. And it says that Mr. Potiphar trusted him with everything in his home. And God blessed him. And Mrs. Potiphar took notice of him. Remember the story? And said to him, come to bed with me. And it tells us in Genesis 39, not just once, but repeatedly, over and over and over. And we can presume that Mrs. Potiphar was not a 90-year-old wrinkled woman. Would you agree with that? And we can presume that she decked herself out every day, trying to entice young Joseph, who's hundreds of miles away from his family, sold as a slave by his own stepbrothers, 
Now think about it, no Bible, no church, no Bible studies, no pastor, no Christian radio, no Silver Birch Ranch, none of the things that you and I have. He is by himself a slave in Egypt, being seduced day after day by his boss's wife. But it says he refused. Where did that come from? Help me. Where did that come from, that ability to refuse? What do you think? Help me. Again, it's a choice, but where did it come from? His relationship with? He had come to understand that his father was Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And he'd heard the stories over and over and over, I believe, as a little boy, from his father and his grandfather about the heritage that he had been born into. That there was a special lineage that almighty God, creator of the earth, had given to his family that he was uniquely born into. And while the circumstances of his situation could lead him to believe that God has abandoned this family, he evidently refused to believe it. And evidently, he looked around as a prisoner and he saw the evidence that God's hand of blessing was upon him. And it says there in Genesis 39 that he said to Mrs. Potiphar, how could I do such a thing and defile my God and your husband. At the moment that that conversation is taking place, remember what's going on? She's got a hold of his coat. There's nobody in the house. Nobody will know. I'm begging you, come to bed with me. And he leaves his coat behind and runs. His boss comes back later in the day, and his wife, look what I've got. That slave that you trust so much tried to rape me. Now, we don't know if Joseph was in the room, but he was probably in the house, and he probably heard that. He goes, what? I did the most honorable thing imaginable, and now you're accusing me of raping you? And her husband, of course, loses his temper. It's his wife. He's going to believe her. Joseph, after all I've done to trust you, throw him in jail. Now, if I'm Joseph, <laughs> God. So, so what did I do wrong that deserves this? Are you saying, God, that I should have slept with her? Is, is that what this is about? Can you see that? But it tells us that in prison, he again quickly moved to the level of most respected among the prisoners in the prison most trusted by the warden of the prison so that he's actually made responsible over sections of the prison. And you'll remember there's two guys that each have a dream and he interprets the dream and they both come before the Pharaoh and sure enough, one is killed and the other one is elevated back to his position. But the last thing Joseph said to him before they went to see the Pharaoh was, don't forget me down here. Two years passed. He'd forgotten them. And then the Pharaoh had a dream and they cleaned him up and brought him because then that guy remembered, oh, there's a guy down there that interpreted my dream and he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream, you'll remember. And the Pharaoh said, is there anyone among us in whom is the spirit of God who can lead now at such a time of great need? What was the time of great need? <laughs> he didn't know it, but a famine was coming. There was need for a prime minister of utmost integrity and wisdom. Joseph. Do you see the difference between Daniel and Joseph? Daniel resolved. It means he made a plan and he stood firm. 
Joseph refused, meaning he had a plan, but the plan was being overwhelmed by a seductive woman, and he had to take a stand and say no, even at the risk of his life. First question, do we each in this room, including me, have a resolve plan so that our reputation from this day forward for the rest of our lives will never, ever be defiled by a stupid mistake? Second question, do I have the courage, the stamina, the, the stuff, and the power of God in me to refuse when I find myself in the most vulnerable of all situations and I'm really tempted to go against my plan, my resolve. Third story, David. Daniel, Joseph, David. Third word, apathy. First word, resolve. Second word, refuse. Third word, apathy. You remember the story? Now you remember that young David is the only person in the Bible who is referred to as a man after God's heart. A remarkable young man whom God blessed greatly and who had a very tender heart toward God and an amazing relationship. But you'll remember the story found in 2 Samuel 11. He's king. He has a palace in Jerusalem. He had just brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and pitched a tent for it, I presume very close to his palace, and worship is taking place under that little tent 24-7 so he can hear it from his office. Can I say it that way in the palace? And it says that he went up one night and he walked around the top of his palace while his army was out doing what armies do in the spring of the year, fighting. As he's walking around on the top of his palace, he had two really good options. One is, look up, the heavens declare the glory of God and be awed by the stars and all that is the fingerprint of God. He didn't do that, evidently. The other is, look down at the Ark of the Covenant underneath this little tent and watch the worshipers. And he didn't do that either, evidently. And instead he looked down over here and what did he see? Bathsheba, who he didn't know what her name was, and what was she doing? Taking a bath. But her swimming suit was on and... Crossroads of decision. Hmm. 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 And he calls the servant. Do you see what I see? Yes, sir. Who is that? Um, I've never seen her quite like that, but I think that's Bathsheba, Mrs. Uriah the Hittite. Go find out. Sir, with all due respect, I think that's... Go find out. In fact, invite her to dinner. Sir, I heard you. Go find out and invite her to dinner. Yes, sir. Mrs. Uriah the Hittite, thanks for joining me for dinner. Uh, you are a beautiful woman. <clears throat> sir, why did you invite me to dinner? Your husband is out there at war. I, I, you must be lonely. Have dinner. Have some more wine. 
You're tired. Don't, don't go home alone. Stay the night. A short while later, Sir, I have a message for you from Mrs. Uriah the Hittite. King David, I'm pregnant. Resolve didn't work. Refuse didn't work because apathy, apathy was in place. It's a cancer, my brothers, that consumes you and me. It's a cancer that says, it's just an old dusty book. Yeah, I probably should read it once in a while, but I don't understand the King James and yeah, I probably should. It's Sunday morning. I, I, I probably ought to. But my buddies have asked me to go fishing or hunting or, or golf or. I ought to stop with one. But I can handle a second. And a third. I shouldn't go there. But it's two o'clock in the morning and nobody knows. It's just a picture. Apathy. Am I right? Have you discovered, my brothers, the way God made us, we have inside of all of us an addictive personality. All of us. That's why we love football and hunting and fishing and, and, and everything else. That addictive personality uses all three of those words. Because when we grow apathetic about resolve or refuse, when we start making excuses for ourselves and disregarding the horrific damage if our children or our parents or our spouses find out apathy, A bottle of Jack Daniels can't hurt you as long as it sits on the table. You can walk around and look at it. You can pick it up and you've got to take it and then take it again and it will start hurting you. But you can slam it down and say never again and it won't take very long and it'll wash out of your system and if you never touch it again, you're free. You may be called a dry alcoholic but at least you're free of it. That syringe of crack or heroin or meth can't hurt you as long as it sits on the table. You can pick it up and look at it. You have got to... Then it gets into your system. But you can decide never again. And it'll wash out of your system There'll be some residual effects, especially if you've been doing it a long time. But once it washes out, you're free. But these are cameras. The brain does not forget images.
and there is a drug in your brain called dopamine. It is the drug that stimulates adrenaline. It's the drug that wants you to pursue more. It's the drug that drives you as an athlete. It's a drug that causes you to want more. With porn, dopamine is unleashed even greater than with drugs or alcohol or gambling or any other addiction. Now here's the great danger of porn. Just like with the alcohol and just like with the drugs, you can unplug your computer and say, never again, and never do it again. Your brain remembers the pictures. And you can bring them up, can't you? Anytime, day or night, you can replay in your mind what you saw last night, last week, last month, last year. You never have to look at it again. It's there. You can bring it up anytime. And so I am convinced in every church in this country, every Sunday morning, there are men like you and me who are sitting, listening to the pastor as he goes on, even some going, amen, but they don't see the pastor. They see the images. And they put their Bible or their hymn book on their lap just in case they have a response. How do I know? I served as a pastor in North Dakota and a few other places. There was a man and his wife and three children that would sit in about the third row. Wonderful service, pastor. Look forward to seeing you next week. One day I get a phone call. I'm in Iowa. I spend about four days a week on the road. I need your help. What's going on? I'll call him Bob. I am a sex addict. I've never touched a woman. I don't need to. I have become proficient. Once I get into my hotel room at finding what I need, I'm enslaved. My wife doesn't know. My three little daughters have no idea. I can't get out. Can you help me? Do you want to get out? Oh, it's killing me. I can help you. And we began to meet, and we began to dig into this. God's powerful life guidebook. I've given you some of the scriptures there. Flee from sexuality, sexual immorality. immorality. All other sins are outside the body, but sexual sins are inside, meaning it's in your mind, in your heart, and defiles your body. All things are permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. I will not be mastered by anything in many other scriptures. We started meeting together. He started memorizing scripture. He started taking specific action, like when he checked in at a hotel, do you have pay-for-view in this hotel? Oh, yes, sir. Disconnect it from my room. What? Can you disconnect it from my room? I, I, don't, I don't know. Then take the television out of my room. And I'm going to give you my laptop, and tomorrow morning when I check out, I'm going to get it back from you. What? If you can't do that, I'm going to another hotel. He took specific action day after day after day, and God broke it. God broke it. And he's the only man I've ever met who about three months later came to me and he said, Pastor, I do not have the ability to recall the pictures. I've tried. 
God has cleansed my mind of every picture and I've been an addict for years. It's possible by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's a risen savior because he defeated Satan, death, and sin. Do you agree with that? So David, a man after God's own heart who had this incredible relationship with God, he could have been looking up and worshiping. He could have been looking at the ark and worshiping and he's looking at a woman who's bathing. Resolve didn't help him. Refuse didn't help him because he had grown apathetic in his heart and it ruined his life. You remember he sent word once he found out she was pregnant to Joab, the commander of his army, put Mr. Uriah the Hittite in the hottest point of the battle and pull back and leave him defenseless. Joab did it. A few days later, a runner comes to advise the king, how's the battle going? It's, it's going well, we're winning, but I'm sorry to report, your faithful servant, a great warrior, Uriah the Hittite, has died in battle. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please send word to Mrs. Uriah the Hittite. I'm so sorry as she grieves. But when she's finished her month of mourning, please have her come and we'll have dinner together again. And he proposes that she would be his wife. It's the honorable thing to do after all. The king marries the dear widow who's pregnant. You may remember that in between those two stories, he had asked that Uriah be sent home to give a report to him of how the battle had gone. He got the report. He says, go home and be with your wife. Uh, you're such a good soldier. And he heard that he did go home and he spent the evening with his wife, but he slept outside on the ground. And he calls Uriah the next day, I heard you slept on the ground. What's that all about? Because my fellow soldiers are sleeping out there on the ground in battle. How could I sleep with my wife as beautiful as she is? I'm a soldier and a faithful soldier. Oh, you're a good man. Uh, have dinner with me tonight. Have another glass of wine. Uh, go home, please. Uh, enjoy the evening with your wife and then go back to battle. And he did, but he slept on the ground again. And that's when David wrote the letter, put him at the front of the battle. Because he knew he was caught. Have you ever calculated how long it was between 2 Samuel 11, the sin of Bathsheba and killing of her husband, and 2 Samuel 12? When Nathan the prophet comes in to the king... He was respected by the king. Oh, king, I have a story to tell you. Oh, wonderful. There were two men. One, a wealthy man, he had flocks and sheep and herds and all. God had blessed him greatly. And another man who was a poor man, he had only one little ewe lamb. And he loved that little lamb. And his children played with that little lamb. In fact, he kept it in his house. The rich man had a friend, a traveler, come from far away, and he wanted to have a nice dinner for him, so he went and he took the little ewe lamb of the, one, of the man and slaughtered it and cooked it for the visitor. And King David says, what? And he rose up and he says, that man ought to die. And Nathan said, you are that man. God had given you the kingdom, and you took another man's wife. And then you had the man killed, and you know it. A year had passed. A year between the day that he was up on the rooftop watching this woman take a bath and the day Nathan said, you're that man. A year. Where inside he had a secret sin, and it was eating him up. That symbol over there is full of pieces of paper, including mine. 
of things that we have come and said, God, I agree with you. It's not right. That's what confess means. I agree, God, with your assessment of my life. These things in me are not right. Anger, pride, resentment. But how many of us wrote down a secret sin? Because in a room this size, there are always guys who are saying, God, you and I both know about that in my life. And we both agree it's wrong, but I'm enjoying it. Give me a little more time. Psalm 66, 18. The Lord will not hear the prayer of the man with a cherished sin. A cherished sin. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't be doing it. But I enjoy it. Give me a little more time. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Joseph refused the temptation. David, lazy, apathetic towards God, and he succumbed and it ruined the rest of his life. That child, you may remember, died but then David and Bathsheba had another child, a little boy. Do you remember his name? Solomon. King Solomon, the wisest and wealthiest king who inherited the kingdom from his father David. And Solomon wrote, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. David had written, Psalm 86, 11, God, give me an undivided heart because my heart is too easily divided between give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Okay, my friends, where are we? Each of us. As I look at my life and my vulnerabilities, do I have a plan of resolve regarding every area in my life where I might be vulnerable? My finances, my temper, the temptation to deceitfulness, lust. Do I have, by the power of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, because I've trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior, the courage that I can refuse, I can refuse the temptation, even if I have to white-knuckle it? Do I have some selected friends around me that I can call at 3 o'clock in the morning to say, I, I have my resolve, and I'm trying my best to refuse, but my knees are starting to get wobbly. Would you stand with me? Or am I all alone in life because I think I can handle it by myself? Honestly, now, am I starting to get a little apathetic, and I'm getting vulnerable? And my eyes are being drawn to where my eyes shouldn't be. My heart is being drawn to where I really don't want my heart to go. And I'm hoping that my wife and my children and my parents never find out. But it's a cherished sin. I want to ask you to play that song again for me. And as he's playing that song, 
I just want us to think, to reflect, to talk to God. And Brad and I, Brad is the director of the camp. We've known each other several years. We have a gift for you. Brad's going to be standing over here. I'm going to be standing over here. So all of you guys, I want to urge you to just come this way. Don't have to rush. He's going to give you something. All of you guys, I'll be over here. You can come this way, and then you can go back to your seats. But I also want to point out what's over here. We have a table with a white blank tablecloth on it and a cross. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament where Jerusalem was surrounded by the most powerful army of the day in King Sennacherib of the Assyrians? They'd already wiped out many other capital cities of other nations, and he writes a letter and sends word to King Hezekiah, surrender now or you and your people will be drinking your own urine. No other God has been able to protect their cities. You're nothing compared to me. King Hezekiah calls the prophet Isaiah. Look what he sent me. What do we do? And Isaiah and King Hezekiah took it and brought it up to the altar in the temple. And they laid it down on the altar. Oh God, what shall we do? He's right. No other nation has been able to stand up against him. He has slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. He's right. We have no ability to defend ourselves. He's right. We will be drinking our own urine if we don't surrender. And God said, you don't do anything. This is my fight. And that night he sent the angel of death that slaughtered 185,000 of the enemy soldiers. 185,000. And King Sennacherib ran like a dog with his tail between his legs. And what few men were left of his army went back to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, went into his temple of worship, the temple of Dagon, and his own sons assassinated him there. So we built an altar. And there's pens there. And uh, not necessarily now while we're concluding this service, but at any time today or even tomorrow, if you've got something in your life and you want to write it down there and lay it before God, God, I don't know what to do with this situation. God, it's almost overwhelming me. It could be a financial problem, a health problem, a pornography problem, a relational problem, whatever it is, there's the altar. Put it before the risen Lord Jesus Christ who understands it and is ready to go to work in your situation. And as you do, resolve to make a plan to protect your reputation and your purity. Develop the courage to refuse when the temptation comes to counter your plan. And above all else, when you smell apathy, well, it's starting to rise up inside of you, moral apathy. Cut it out, however you have to. Do I have time for a quick story? My story. So about three and a half years ago, we're finishing serving a group of people in the church in southern Wisconsin. And my wife says to me, before we leave, why don't you have a physical? You haven't had one in a couple years. I'm strong as a horse. I, I don't, yeah, maybe I shall. The doctor says, shall I take a PSA test? I don't know. You're the doctor. Let's do one. He calls me the next day. Pastor Doug, everything looks great, but you've got a PSA 45. 
45. Something's very wrong, and you got no time because you're moving in a few days, so I've already got an appointment with the urologist. I go to see the urologist. He's done what do, he does what urologists do. Feels good to me. Let's take a biopsy. If you've had one of those. When am I going to see the results? Four or five days. We're already moving. I'll call you. We're unloading the boxes out of our Penske rental truck. Uh, yo, Pastor Doug, you've got a Gleason 9. Any guys in the room understand what PSA numbers and Gleason number means? You can't get higher than a 10. I didn't know that. Doctor, what does that mean? You have highly aggressive prostate cancer. I'll never forget it. What do I do with that? Well, whatever you're doing right now, stop doing it and call an oncologist. Now, we fly back up to Wisconsin. You got several options, but I would suggest you have a radical prostatectomy. Okay, what's that mean? We cut it out of there. Go onto this website and watch this video. What is it? It'll explain radical prostatectomy. I'm glad I did. You know why? As they wheeled me into the surgical suite, here stands a six-armed stainless steel robot. The robot did my surgery, and I asked the doctor, where are you? I'm in the next room controlling the robot. What? Yeah, but the robot has six arms. I only have two. It's much more efficient. They took the prostate. They took some lymph nodes. We're going to do pathology. He calls me a week or so later. Great news. Your lymph nodes are clear. Prostate, as you know, is kind of like an orange. It's got a skin around it. They call it the margin. And cancer cells start inside and work their way out. No cancer in the lymph nodes. No cancer in your bones from the bone scan. And no cancer in the margin. You're great. Praise God. But let's take a PSA just to find out. Six weeks later, 0 0.5. Ooh. I said, that sounds great to me. He said, uh, let's do another one at 0 0.8 six weeks later. Let's do another one six weeks, 1.4. What does that mean, Doc? Some of that highly aggressive cancer escaped during the surgery, and it's somewhere in your body, but we don't know where, and it's multiplying rapidly. Miracle of God's coincidences, I meet a guy who knows a world-renowned doctor in Sarasota. He says, I can find it, and he did. 45 radiation treatment, zap, 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 and I'm cancer-free three years later, by God's grace. As the doctor is getting, ready, getting me ready for the surgery, he says, now we need to talk about a couple of manly things. I'll try my best. But the truth is, the way that God has designed your prostate, there's nerve endings that wrap all around us, and one of those nerve endings has to do with a, a response when you see your wife naked. And uh, ejaculation. I'll try my best to protect that, but I may not. That's why we have things like Viagra and so on. I haven't had relationships with my wife in three years. And we've talked about that many times. She's a beautiful woman with her clothes on. She's a really beautiful woman with her clothes off. And that hasn't changed. But we have had to find new ways of expressing our love to one another in a way 
that assures both of us of our great love, and I don't mean kinky stuff. I mean verbal things. I mean hugs. I mean prayer together. And every time I go back to see the doctor, he says, are you ready for some pills? Or, you know, we can do a surgical thing and insert some. We're good. We're good. Because we had developed an intimacy relationship that wasn't dependent on how fast could I get a rise up and ejaculation. It was built on something much deeper than that. Resolve, refuse, and don't let apathy grow. Change my heart, oh God, it needs to be different. Brother Brad, would you bring your, let's worship. Come on up and get what we have for you, my brothers. Change my heart, oh God.